Good morning. I think you all know me. I'm Leah. I'm the pastor here at Haven. I'm so glad you're here. So I'm going to start with a little story. I did not have a great experience of church growing up. My family attended a, a mainline denominational church, and uh, I never really connected, I would say, spiritually in a powerful way. But there was one event that happened uh, during my youth that I remember that really did make an impression on me. And it came in the midst of one of the most grievous events I had witnessed in my young life. Uh, The home of my best friend, when I was probably about 10 or 11, um, a friend from our church actually burned to the ground. Her home burned to the ground. We were actually on a camping trip with a number of families from this church when uh, somebody from the campsite like came to our our little campsite, like the ranger or something, and said, we have the fire department on the phone, and they're trying to reach you. And uh, we find out that this family's house is on fire. And so uh, my parents are kind of like their closest friends. Uh, the other groups there, the other families kind of took charge of myself and my siblings for the rest of the weekend while my parents uh, drove this family back to kind of see what was going on. By the time they arrived at their home, about 40 miles away, uh, there wasn't much to see. The house was pretty much completely gone. It was a tragic event. Thankfully, nobody was hurt in it, but all of their stuff, their whole life in that house was destroyed. Um, But it was an event in which I powerfully saw the impact of community in the midst of pain. The family, you know, we were on this camping trip, and they happened to have a camper. So they parked it in our driveway for a number of weeks, and they just kind of lived with us until there was another place for them to go. They, uh, they actually owned a rental home that they were renting out, and so they needed to give their tenants notice and then eventually move into the house while their own house was being rebuilt. So we found we were kind of like temporary, you know, housers for these folks. And again, they had lost everything. So not long into their time with us, soon our tables began to be filled with clothing, with toys, with household items uh, that our church friends were bringing by. Okay? Before long, all the tables and other services were filled, and it was like filling up the backyard. We had furniture, piles of clothes, so many toys, so many, you know, just lamps and things like that that you need in your house, right? People just felt the need to come and bring them stuff. Um, And it was beautiful. They supplied them everything they needed. And then on the day they moved into their rental house, there was a lot of work that was going to need to be done on this house to really make it a home for them. And so the whole community showed up. The whole community moved them in, did all the handyman projects, painted the walls, got everything nice and cozy for them. It was like a real show of people coming around and supporting them. And I was really impacted by it. I, again, I didn't really connect with the theology of our church. I didn't feel alive to the liturgy. But that I connected with. That made a powerful impression on me. That seemed like something real, something special. Well, in recent years, especially in Western developed countries, there's been a move, it seems, away from traditional religious experience, from church for a lot of folks. Right? Religious survey after survey relate the decline of churches, 
the decline of people saying my affiliation is Christianity or anything else, and the growth of the nuns, right? Those who claim no religious affiliation. And for many, uh, leaving faith, at least the faith of your youth, tends, there, there tend to be good reasons for that, right? Some, sometimes they have to do with like spiritual PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. I think this applies to a number of folks who call Haven home folks who've been hurt by some of the things that we've talked about in the fall, right? We did a whole series on kind of smashing the idols of whiteness, of androcentrism, patriarchy, heteronormativity, and so on. Those idols hurt, and all too often in communities of faith, they hurt, they hurt us. Sometimes the move we need to make for growth, personally, spiritually, holistically, is to leave it all behind, But there is a loss there. There's a real loss. I listened recently on uh, On Being, uh, if you guys know the show On Being on NPR, uh, to an interview with a guy named Christian Wyman. He is a poet, um, a prose author as well, a professor of uh, of literature, poetry, etc. at a number of universities. And he has an interesting story. He grew up in a conservative Southern Baptist home in Texas, Um, And the world in which he was immersed, as you might imagine, everyone went to church, right? Everyone confessed faith in a very, like, sincere, strong, fervent way in Jesus. But it was also a very violent world. Very turbulent family history he found himself. A lot of guns that were, that sometimes actually hurt people. He knew. Uh, There was a lot of volatile relationships he had in, in his family with his father, And it all kind of seemed bound up, this violent culture with this fire and brimstone faith. And college for Christian Wyman provided the escape from all of it, from all that felt toxic. He found himself leaving so much of it behind when he went to school in Virginia, including the faith of his youth. He immersed himself, found himself in poetry. And Wyman became this accomplished poet and eventually the editor of Poetry Magazine, which he was for at least a decade. And then in his late 30s, uh, a strange thing happened. He'd been happily living his whole adult life, this kind of secular uh, intellectual existence for decades, and then he fell in love, like real love, for the first time in his life. Something that he had, as a poet, kind of thought cynically was not a real thing. And then it happened to him, and it changed him. It made him alive to a reality in a new way, the same way, and the same thing was true for his secularist beloved who became his wife. In their early time in their relationship, as they're discovering each other, they would find one another, you know, before a meal, feeling this need to say thanks to the universe, but neither of them really believing in the Christian God, but feeling this sense of there is something good that must be undergirding all of this that we're experiencing, and we have to give thanks to it. He, would, he described uh, when they got engaged, there was this season where they would hover outside of the door of churches, just wondering if they'd ever be courageous enough to go in. Something was drawing them. Something, curiosity was sparked, and yet they weren't brave enough to do it. And then on his 39th birthday, a year or so into their young marriage, Christian was given a devastating diagnosis. He had an incurable blood cancer. 
that, could, that was quite unpredictable in how it would progress. Uh, doctors told him it could go very quickly and he could be gone, or it could spare him for many decades. It could be a quite a horrific, uh, debilitating experience, or it actually could not be a huge deal for a long time. There was just really no way to know. Christian described the experience of processing the news in an essay like this. In those early days after the diagnosis, when we mostly just sat on the couch and cried, I alone was dying, but we were mourning very much together. And what we were mourning was not my death, exactly, but the death of the life we'd imagined with each other. And then one morning, we found ourselves going to church. Found ourselves. That's exactly what it felt like in both senses of the phrase, as if some impulse in each of us had finally been catalyzed into action so that we were casting aside the Sunday paper and moving toward the door with barely a word between us. And as if, once inside the church, we were discovering exactly where and who we were meant to be. That first service was excruciating in that it seemed to tear all wounds wide open, and it was profoundly comforting and then it seemed to offer the only possible balm. This began a season for Christian of not conversion, he would say, but of acknowledging what he would come to believe as a faith that had remained latent with him all along. The practice of faith again, Involvement in church became, again, an important way of being in the world. It wasn't that all his questions were answered or his doubts resolved. His faith was a very different faith than than the faith practice he'd been given in his youth, but he'd found that the act of doing it, of practicing faith with others, became essential for living into the deepest parts of himself. The joy of finding love, the fear and grief wrapped up in the knowledge that it would not last as long as he hoped. Well, I started off this year here at Haven calling our community to what I said was I felt like a call to the word reform. Not reform, but reform, re-hyphen form, meaning to form again, right? To kind of form afresh. And it's something we're going to be taking this year from kind of a number of angles. What does it mean for us to reform parts of ourselves, our personal identities? What does it mean for us to reform what it means to be a citizen, to be our identities as people of faith? But we're also going to be taking it from a communal aspect. What does it mean for us to kind of reform, to form again? I feel like that's a moment we're kind of in. We've had some, some comings and goings, but there's a time of kind of like recatalyzing. And so that's, and through Lent, we're going to be considering more of the personal reforming that's coming in about a month. But leading up to that, over the next couple of weeks, I want to take some time to think about the communal, okay? And I shared this picture that I got um, last summer when Ginny and I were praying into kind of the vision of Haven. And, and the picture I had was this grove of trees. That's why we got some trees there. It was this grove of trees, and it was this sense of these trees didn't look like they belonged together. They were kind of mismatched. But it was this sense of God has brought these mismatched trees somehow into one thing. And, and beneath the surface, even if they look like these things are disparate, they don't belong together, beneath the surface, their roots were starting to intermingle. And something deep was happening. They were becoming 
like an organic unit. And there were holes where some folks who aren't a part of our community have been, and that's real. There's just like, the, it's up, they've been uprooted, there's this ugly hole there, and it's a slow process of, of new life coming into that, both uh, as other trees are transplanted in, but also, uh, you know, as new growth comes, little saplings come. But this sense of over time, God was tending this grove so that it could provide nourishment and shade, the trees for each other, as well as others who would come into the shade of that grove. So that's the end of the picture of, like, what is this that we're doing? Okay? And so I'm talking about this in the next couple weeks. What is essential to this thing, this what I'm calling sacred community? What is it about, this idea of spiritual community, that no matter how much PTSD we may have, we feel like we can't fully get away from it, right? Most of us might not have had an event as dramatic as Christians that brought him back, right? But we've likely had a series of, of experiences. Some have been heartening and some have been painful. We may have been hurt by people in the church or found the theology too limited in scope or application, but yet we still recognize something of life that we need, in the practice of Jesus-centered faith with other people. So we deconstruct so much of our belief and our understanding of organized religion, but what are we hanging on to? What are we reconstructing? What do we find ourselves, like Christian Wyman, drawn to? That's what I want to explore. And I believe at the core of it is the concept of belonging. Belonging in a collective. Not just belonging to the divine. Not just belonging to God as individuals, or even belonging to an institution, but actually belonging to a group of real people, right? And that's what we're going to consider over the next two weeks. And I'm going to take it from two angles, belonging to one another and belonging for the sake of others, okay? Today we're going to explore the first, this idea of belonging to one another. And our model in this is the group that Jesus called to belong with him, Right? Most of the stories we have of his life involve people deeply investing in one another, spending intimate time with them, building belonging. That's what he's doing. Rather than focusing on one text that just tells us this is the key, this is what belonging is, we're just going to take a little bit more of a, a brief look at a few vignettes that I think paint a picture of what this kind of, what's at the heart of this community and why, why it's important and what we should be focusing on as we try to reform it ourselves. So the first story, I'm just going to take us through three little stories, okay, that kind of explore the importance of belonging. The first comes right at the beginning of Jesus's ministry as he's forming his first sacred community. You can read it with me from Luke 5. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him, listening to the word of God, and he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water, let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. 
And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. I love this story. It's a wonderful, amazing little story. There is so much we could dig into. But today we're just interested in one point I want to draw out, okay? And it's this. I think sacred community invites us to enter one another's stories. Sacred community invites us to enter one another's stories. So Jesus is preaching by the side of the water. And he notices that these fishermen, they're not there to listen to him. They're doing their thing. They're cleaning their nets. There's all these people that have come to hear Jesus preach. They are not among them, right? But Jesus has this sense when he sees them. He decides he could use a boat. So he asks the fishermen if he can borrow it. And most scholars think this was probably about acoustics. They didn't have PAs in Jesus' time, but there were ways around that. So if you were out a bit on the water, that meant your voice could kind of bounce off the water and amplify, right? So he's doing that. He invites Peter's help, asks him to put the boat out. And then after he's done preaching, he encourages him to fish, which results in this miraculous catch. But what I love about this at every point is that it demonstrates Jesus coming to Simon Peter, the fisherman, connecting with his identity as a man who's making his living catching fish. Jesus doesn't go around announcing, hey, a new rabbi's in town. I'm looking for some followers. If you're interested, come and study with me. Words out. You can apply. That's not what he's doing, right? He sees something in Peter and James and John, and rather than expect them to do the cross-cultural work to come to him, He goes to them. He meets them where they are at. He enters their lives, their stories, their vocation, their identities as fishermen. And then he gives them an invitation and an imagination for a way that that same identity could even serve a bigger purpose. Right? Now, most of us aren't going to work a miracle with someone, like, during our first encounter with them. That's okay. I don't think we need to. But we can enter one another's stories, which honestly is also super powerful. This happens when we open ourselves up to sharing our history. I think there's a real sacredness in sharing our personal stories. And I'm not talking about sharing the stuff we put on social media, right? That's like a sanitized, maybe even hashtag braggy kind of like persona, right? I'm talking about the real stuff that we wouldn't put up there. The triumphs and the disappointments. The stories of our discovery and joyful moments, but also our losses, our doubts, what we're really struggling, what we've really struggled with. And I have to acknowledge it it means a certain amount of risk, right? We don't always know how people are going to respond to our experiences. It is vulnerable. Can others hear our grief, our doubt, or is it going to be threatening? Can they sit in our pain? Will they 
judge us for our histories. But when we can foster a culture of genuine curiosity and care and acceptance, it's an immense gift. It's powerful to give others the gift of our compassion and care. True empathy, I believe, is an antidote to despair. True empathy is an antidote to despair. Why? It brings us from a place of solitude in our stories. When we sense that the harder parts of our stories separate us from others, right? Here we are brought to a place of communion as we experience connection, even in the difficult parts of our stories, even from those who have not yet lived our same experiences. It's a sacred thing. Sacred community invites us to enter into one another's stories. And that brings us to our next vignette. This also involves Simon Peter and those closest to him, also in Luke. Jesus left the synagogue, went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she got up at once and began to wait on them. And at sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Again, there's different things we could look at here. But what's interesting to me is this one. Sacred community invites us to share our personal lives. Okay, this is a two-verse little vignette, really. This thing about him healing Simon Peter's mom mother-in-law, okay? But it appears in three of the four Gospels. It's this simple little thing, but they all tell this story, and I appreciate it because I feel like it's a little glimpse behind the curtain, right? Jesus actually healing Peter's mother-in-law. Not, not all these other people, but like this personal thing. It can be easy just to focus on the healing, and in some ways, the gospel writers themselves seem to be making that point because this kind of is the beginning, the launching into the big healing ministry, right? He begins with the mother-in-law, and then all these people are, that are sick are brought there, and it becomes a big thing. But what I'm interested for this conversation is just the fact that they're hanging out at Peter's house. He's having the group over with his family. He has a wife, apparently. We never see her. We never meet her in any of the gospels, but she exists because he has a mother-in-law right? So they're hanging out with his wife, with her mom. Who knows? Maybe there are kids in the mix, right? They're doing family stuff. And mother-in-law happens to be sick. And so they ask Jesus if he can help. But the miracle wouldn't have happened if they weren't sharing the everyday nitty-gritty of life together, hanging out in each other's homes, sharing meals together. It is such a simple thing. But how often do we do it? Right? One of my most powerful experiences of deep community actually came when we were living in Iowa City for five years. We had this family that we connected to. They were a part of the church I was working for. And we happened to have uh, kids that all were kind of in the same age range. And so they played together really well. And this couple, they just clicked with Jason and I. And, and it was beautiful. And they didn't live that far. And so we found ourselves just gravitating to each other in the days ins and days outs of life not on just on Sundays but there was this like Tuesday night let's grab dinner Thursday night I don't know what we're doing for dinner have you cooked something we're going to come over it was just a regular piece can you pick up my kids I I can't be here and there at the same time sure I got them 
or we're having a, a hard time right now, we kind of need to just have an, a time for Jason and I to get away. Can we drop the kids at your place for a while? Sure. It was that kind of back and forth, personal life. And so then when stuff got hard, when someone had had a painful conversation with their parents, when uh, a job was lost, when crises hit, we showed up for each other. We brought a bottle of wine. The kids played while we would drink wine and hear each other and curse and cry and pray and find, like Peter's mom, healing in one another, in just that nitty-gritty of life together. Over time, I think it's clear that the fact that these followers of Jesus share personal life together um, knits them in a, in a particular way. They become kin to Jesus. They are tighter with him than actual blood relations. Intimacy is built that is like family, and we see it, right? When Jesus' biological mother and brothers try to come in, they hear about some of the ministry stuff that he's doing. It freaks them out. They come in to try to take charge of him, maybe pull him back from the work. Somebody is sent through a crowd in this place he's hanging out to Jesus and says, hey, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And what's his response? Mark 3, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is my family. It's not meant, I think, to really be a diss of biological family. But I think it's meant to recognize that sometimes our closest kinship, our closest connection and community is with people we're not biologically related to. It's the people we're doing life with. We're engaged in supporting one another, sharing in common purpose together, walking the spiritual path together. And that brings us to our last vignette. This is Luke 9. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people don't welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and they went from village to village proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. And I'm just going to skip forward a bit. The whole experiment of sending followers of Jesus out to minister seems to go really well. And so Jesus expands the mission. Okay, So in the next chapter, he describes he sends out now 72 of them. And he gives them basically the same speech. And they all go out and do this. And then picking up in Luke 10. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Rejoice your names are written in heaven. 
And at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. No one who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but didn't see it, and to hear what you hear, but didn't hear it. Where am I going with this? Here's what I find interesting about this. The idea that sacred community invites us to share spiritual experiences together. Invites us to share the spiritual experiences together. That is why it's sacred community, right? Everything else I've been talking about could theoretically happen in some other kind of context. But there's this binding piece of spiritual power, spiritual experience shared together. I could have picked a lot of different stories. This is just one of them, right? Where they are in something together that is spiritually energizing and bonding. They experience, what I like about this story is you get to see the sense of them experiencing the victory of it together. They get sent out two by two. They get to do this thing together, and then they come back together feeling this sense of joy. Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name, to us, to our community in your name. When we partner with you and with each other, God, we experience power. And I love how this vignette ends. It's like the 72 are rejoicing, and then Jesus pulls the 12 alongside as if he wants them to be kind of in on, like, the knowledge. His, like, buddies, his closest. Like, how special this is, what they're witnessing. He's saying, this is like a historic moment right here. You're a part of it. People have been wanting this for millennia. People are being empowered and released by the Spirit of God to do wonderful, powerful things. And you're the lucky ones who get to be here at the moment it begins. It's experiences like this, I think, that ultimately form the heart of Jesus' sacred community and bond them to him and to one another. They have these corporate encounters after corporate powerful encounter. They help Jesus feed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes, right? They watch him calm a storm. They watch him walk on water. They're released to do some of the same miraculous things that he does, and it works. They pray for people. They're healed. They cast out demons. They preach good news. And these experiences end up meaning more than all the stuff about Jesus they still don't get because that's there too. There's lots of that that is just like head-scratching about Jesus, and we're still scratching our heads a bit today, right? People think, this is messed up. I don't get it. John tells us about this incident where Jesus is saying this thing about, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to be a part of me. And people are like, that is too much. No, thank you, right? And they walk away, and I might have been one of them. They don't get it. But those who have shared those kind of spiritual experiences with Jesus can't dismiss it, even in the midst of confusion and all the things they don't understand. John tells us this, right? From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him, 
You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know you are the Holy One of God. Yeah, I don't get it all. I don't understand a word you're saying half the time. But I have seen it. I've experienced it. I can't deny it. You have the words of eternal life. Those powerful spiritual moments didn't even pass when the moment itself was over, right? They endured. They endured the betrayal that came from one of their inner circle. They endured their own failures as people like Peter ran from the group when Jesus was being tried, denied their participation in this whole thing. They endured the crucifixion. They endured the tormented nights of fear that this was all over and it was a mistake. They endured through the wonder and the glory of the resurrection, through the mysterious walk on the road to Emmaus, through the time with the risen Jesus and the loss they must have felt anew when he ascended and left them again. They endured through the waiting for God's spiritual comfort to come and through the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost and the eventual establishing of more and more and more little sacred communities like the one that originally, that these original Jesus followers had been brought into. I can't get away from this thing we're doing. As hard as it has been at times, as hard as it has been in the last year for me, I can't get away from it. I have had too many of these experiences of praying with people and seeing God show up, of, of, of hearing words of comfort from others that I don't know how else they could have spoken those to me except that they were from God, of having experiences in corporate worship where the Spirit is present in a way that I can't get to on my own of having uh, my own despair be brought into something bigger and beautiful and, and the sense that it, it matters. My fear, my despair, my doubt, but it mingles with hope, with reality, with spiritual power, and it makes something much bigger when we all come together and bring that mix of hope and faith along with our doubt, along with our questions. It's a beautiful mosaic that I just can't get away from. The story of Jesus encountering folks and bringing them into his story isn't about just a whole bunch of individual lives changed, right? It's not just about people getting saved. He has the truth. She has the truth. She has it now. He has it now. One, 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 one. You're good. You're good. You're good. You're good. You're good. You're connected to God. You're connected to God. That's like a very individualistic idea, right? But no, it seems to be about folks being brought in. Yes, to connection with God, but inherent in that is sacred belonging. And this brings us finally to kind of what does it mean for us? We're this little community. We're small. We have like 30 people who, adults, plus, you know, 15 kids or something, who regularly call this their church home. Lots of folks can't make it here every Sunday. So we're trying to figure out, like, what does that mean? 
we're ministering in a context that that doesn't have the same assumptions about church every Sunday. It doesn't necessarily have the same cultural expectations for what is going to serve these aims I've been talking about. And so the reality is the forums might need to change. We might need to like kind of throw everything up in the air for a bit and say, if this isn't, if this isn't best serving the cultivating of that sacred community for our context, what would? What would? We might need to experiment with it, right? Change up some of what we're doing. Christian Wyman said something in that interview about sometimes faith needs to die so that it can take new forms. There's this reality of, uh, I think we're in kind of a generational like, that's happening on kind of a big scale of us saying that the ways that things have worked in the past, some of that needs to die so it can take some new form. But the what the form is going to be, what it's going to be resurrected to, we're still figuring that out, right? But I think whatever we do, it needs to serve these three aims. We need to find ways we can actually belong to one another, to share our stories to share our personal lives, to encounter the divine together. And that requires things of us. That's where I'm going to end here. Entering each other's stories, I touched on this before, requires vulnerability, risk-taking. It also requires sensitivity to one another, requires us to listen more than we speak, receive one another without judgment, with a desire to actually see the creation of God reflected in one another and that is hard and it is something that i think our current culture pushes against we're in the era of snap judgments where you evaluate someone based on a 120 character tweet for good or for bad but we are uh we i think jesus is inviting us to a deeper sensitivity sharing our personal lives requires intentionality it doesn't just happen on its own we have to make time to be together right we have to be thoughtful about how that happens. It might mean we need to schedule it, to prioritize it, to locate our lives around it. It may at times mean sacrifice. Saying yes to spending time with one another may mean no to something else. And that doesn't mean that other things we're involved in aren't good and important. But it is a real question of how we can build something that's more um, life-giving and full if we don't ever make the time for it. And finally, I think sharing spiritual experiences requires an open-heartedness to God's spirit and to one another. It requires us to hope, to press into practices that sometimes feel strange, but familiar, awkward, but comforting. For those who've been hurt in spiritual community, it requires us to acknowledge our hurt and be present to it, even bring others into it, but at the same time not allow our places of hurt to keep us from opening ourselves up to the divine. I feel this tension all the time here at Haven. We try really hard to be like a a trigger safe space, recognizing that a lot of people are coming in with their own spiritual triggers of like, some folks are really triggered by evangelical worship. Some folks are really triggered by liturgy. Some folks, it's the preaching. And it's like all these different things. And, And there's this sense of kind of like, at a certain place, can we do anything? <laughs> and so we have to hold these both in tension, right? Of saying, we want to be sensitive and we want to make space for you to kind of do what you need to do to connect with God. And we're going to really try hard not to get in the way of that. But we also don't want to swing to the side of, 
we don't have anything <laughs> that we're, we're moving forward in to build spirit, powerful spiritual experiences together. Does that make sense? I think it's a tension we all need to stand in um, together as a community with sensitivity to where each other are at, as well as hope, hope that God is actually in the midst of this and that God's spirit does want to reach us and heal us and bring us into shared spiritual powerful experiences that empower us for all that God has for us. Amen. So I'm going to take I'm going to end with uh, one last quote from Christian Wyman. He says, "I'm a Christian." This is kind of where he's at now. Uh, probably five, he's still he's still with us. He actually has kids. I think he's about 10 years post diagnosis at this point. Um, and this is where he's at now. I'm a Christian. I believe that Christ comes alive in communion between people. Sometimes I'll think all kinds of things are wrong with my life. My job is messing me up. My writing's messing me up. Something's messed up. And then I'll have a conversation with someone around a religious topic, or it's spiritually informed in some way, and it's honest. And even if we don't get anywhere, even if we disagree, the air has been cleared in me, and I realize that in some way I was dealing with all these things that weren't the ground. They weren't bedrock. They weren't the ground of my being. And I'm trying to take care of things, the structures on top, instead of the ground of my being. And I find that often all you need is some kind of conversation with someone, even if it's just expressing pure anxiety, he said. I think that's a beautiful picture, that Christ comes alive in our communion, that there is something we need in each other just to deal with the anxiety of life. Amen? And I pray that we would grow in that this year.